0: Galatians, we're um, finishing off Galatians. You might be relieved to know that or maybe you're actually like, oh that's really sad, I've been loving it. But we're in the last chapter now, chapter six, so I think it's just me tonight and then I think you've got one more next week and then there's a whole new world of teaching opening up beyond Galatians. So I will, I will keep stum about what that is for now and you can just be really overwhelmed by surprise when we unveil that. Uh, I'm going to stop being silly and read the word of God. After Dave and Shona have given out Bibles, if you want a Bible, sit your hand up, and uh, we will we will bring one to you. And if you don't have one um, of your own at home, then you're most welcome to keep this one and have it as a gift from us to you. It's the best gift you'll ever be given, I promise you. The Word of God. So uh, Galatians, it will come up on the screen as well, or you might want to look it up in your own Bible, or maybe you've got one on your phone and you can swipe, etc. But we're in Galatians, it's chapter 6, and uh, it's actually not verses 1 to 6, it's verses 1 to 5. Okay, just five verses for us this evening, here we go. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Okay, so just five short verses for us tonight, but there's lots in there. You know, through the book of Galatians so far, Paul, who wrote it, has been talking all about law and grace, and talking about, you know, why do you feel like you have to do all this stuff to earn God's love? You don't. God just loves you. It's all about grace, and it's not about law. That has been the big theme throughout Galatians, and yet in this passage, right at the end, Paul starts to talk about relationships, and what it would look like as the people of God, if we actually, you know, took that stuff on board about living under God's grace, living as people of the Spirit. How does that um, kind of infiltrate the way we relate to one another? And so everything in this chapter is very, very relational. So tonight that's what we're looking at. What does it look like to be people of integrity as individuals and as the body of Christ? And some of what we're looking at, I'll be honest with you, is a little bit uncomfortable is a little bit uncomfortable but it's still the word of god to us and so we have to take it on board so let's get cracking people of integrity number one are truth tellers people who tell the truth to one another. So I don't know what your experience of confrontation is like, whether it's something that you really love, a little bit of a difficult conversation, confrontation, tough love, maybe you thrive off that. I think you're a bit weird if you do. Uh, Most of us, I imagine, probably think, oh gosh, I hate that. I hate having difficult conversations with people. It's the last thing I want to do. You know, I was chatting with somebody recently who told me about when she first got married, she had never had an argument with anybody in her life. Her family didn't do that kind of thing. Nothing was spoken about. And so the first time her and her husband kind of had a moment of conflict, she literally didn't know what to do and she ran out the room. And her husband had to chase her and say, "Uh, hello, we were having a conversation. She just didn't know what to do. Because confrontation is not particularly fun, and you know, I remember a time uh, before I started going out with Dave when I knew that I kind of fancied him a little bit. But he had—he uh, did something that deeply upset me. And uh, as many of you will know, I have a beautiful keyboard that's really precious to me. It's quite valuable. And Dave one day very kindly offered to pack my keyboard away into its case. Very kind of him. However, a few weeks later, when I then went and got the keyboard out of the case, I noticed down the side there was a scratch. And let's actually be honest, it wasn't a scratch, it was more like a gouge. In my beautiful cherry wood panel oh, on the end of my keyboard, there was a gouge. And I knew that I hadn't done it, and I knew that it was him. And so I, I knew that I had to go and speak to him about it. And uh, You know, so I took a deep breath and as far as I was concerned, I was very kind and just asked him, you know, gently, you know, do you know anything about this scratch on my keyboard? And he flat out told me, no, it wasn't me. And then an hour later, came back and told me, oh, actually, I've just remembered it was... Yeah. If you know Dave at all, that's not because he was lying the first time. It's just because he's like that he, he had forgotten that he'd done it. But he admitted he had. But the truth is this you know, sometimes we have to have difficult conversations with people that we love. And it is not fun, but it's part of life, you know. And it might be because they've hurt us, or it might be because we see something, some sin in their life that we know that we need to point out to them. Uh, and that is what we're going to look at tonight. It says in verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. There's an instruction right there, bam, verse 1. If you're a Christian, it says you who live by the Spirit, so if you are a Christian, that means you, it is your job to restore someone who is caught in sin. And, uh, the, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and when you go back and you look at the Greek, I can't read Greek, I just rely on people in books to tell me. The word uh, for restore, you know, restoring that person in Greek, was actually like a medical term that was used to talk about um, when um, a bone had become dislocated, uh, about fixing that again. So restoring a dislocated bone, putting it back in place. And if you have ever dislocated anything, has anyone ever dislocated something? you know that that moment when the doctor kind of clicks and crunches it back into place, boy, it is painful. But it's like a healing pain, isn't it? It needs to happen. It needs to happen. So when something is dislocated, you know, it's moved from where it was meant to be. It's moved from where it was supposed to be. And as the body of Christ, as the church, if somebody is not where they are meant to be with God, if something is not quite right then Paul's instruction to us here is we've got to help locate it, relocate it, put it back, fix it, mend it, restore it. Help them be where they're meant to be with the Lord. Jesus himself actually said it. If you go into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus had said, if your brother or sister sins against you, you need to rebuke them. You know, you need to sit them down and say, look, that is not right, or that is not good for you. We care about sin. We care about the state of our hearts. You know, when you look throughout Scripture, there's so much stuff that talks about how we should run away from sin. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says we should reject every kind of evil. 2 Timothy 2, 22 says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Romans 12, 9, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And there's so much more than those three verses. But scripture is clear. We need to be people that are committed to rooting sin out of our lives completely. Fleeing from sin. Rejecting evil in our lives but also in other people's lives too. You know, we want to pursue righteousness, holiness. And we want those around us to pursue it as well we want it for our brothers and sisters too so I'm not suggesting that you know we're waiting to pounce on people all the time well that's your sin and have you noticed that in your life ready to just tell them all the things that are wrong with them I'm not suggesting that but we need to be people who are willing to confront each other willing should the need arise to sit down with people and restore them and correct them because that's what it means to be someone of integrity. you know. When you see something happening in someone's life and you don't say anything, that's wrong, isn't it? That is wrong. And when it all comes to light and someone says, what, you knew? And you didn't say anything? That's wrong, right? So people of integrity tell the truth and they refuse to ignore sin. So people of integrity tell the truth, they're truth tellers. Number two, people of integrity are shame killers. It is a sad fact that sin in the church exists. It is a reality. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens because we're all sinners. We're all broken people, aren't we? That is, that's the truth. But in this passage, you know, Paul isn't actually talking about the sin and he isn't talking about the sinner. He's talking about the way we deal with the sin and the sinner. He's talking about how it's dealt with, the manner in which we deal with it. So he's not giving us an exact method for how to have difficult conversations or how to di- uh, directly deal with sin. But he tells us the way, the manner in which we should act. And it says, restore the person gently. Restore them gently. So picture me, Hazel Ryan, age 10, out on a bike ride with my dad uh, and my baby sister who's in the pram at the time. And so I'm the one on the bike, by the way. No one else, just me. And uh, I fell off and I hurt my ankle. Now, maybe it was because I was a slightly dramatic 10-year-old that my dad chose to not believe me when I said, it really, really hurts. I don't know why he chose to believe that, and I don't know why he chose to kind of wriggle my leg around and tell me that, oh, probably we're going to have to amputate it, oh, it looks really bad. And I don't know why he decided to not believe me and make me cycle home, but he did. And we got home, and the afternoon went on, and my leg ballooned and ballooned and ballooned. And he thought, after a while, oh, actually, maybe we should be going to A&E. So we went to A&E, and lo and behold, it was broken. But those doctors dealt with me so differently to my dad. They very tenderly, very gently took a look at my ankle. They knew it was fragile. They knew it was no good to be harsh with it. It was no good to rough it around and tell me it needed to be amputated because they knew it would do more damage than good. For a good doctor knows to handle with care, to restore gently. Gentleness and love are fruit of the Spirit. You know, if you're a Christian and the Spirit of God lives in you, then there are characteristics that kind of are displayed in our life, are fruit in our lives, and gentleness and love are two of those things. You know, so when we sit down with someone and we know that we've got to have a really difficult conversation, where we're maybe pointing out things in their lives that are uncomfortable, that person needs to know when they leave the conversation, they need to know that I am for them, you know, I'm for you, I want the best for you, and that they feel secure knowing that. You know that the conversation is utterly grounded in love and gentleness, and and they leave knowing that all he wanted to do was encourage them to pursue God and to flee from sin. There's absolutely no place in a difficult conversation for shame or condemnation. I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, but it seems like probably fueled by social media, there's this kind of phenomenon uh, of public shaming that seems to be okay. You know, um, that in the olden days when we'd put somebody in stocks or pillory and people would gather to look at that, it seems to be much broader than that these days. When someone's done something wrong, you can put it on the internet and everybody can share it and say, yeah, look, look what a disgrace this person is. Look what they've done. And we can all comment on it. You know, and we can tell everybody else, we can all join in and rally around and share our disgust and shame this individual. And you know, when we do that, it makes us look like this society that is just unforgiving. Publicly shaming people. Research says that humiliation is felt more strongly than even happiness or anger. Such is the power of shame. I don't know if anybody saw this recently, but Monica Lewinsky did a TED talk uh, all about the impact of shame. And if you don't know who she is, she, uh, she was famous a long time ago for having an affair with President Clinton. And in fact, she was almost the, the, one of the first big internet scandals, really. It went, went loose on the internet. And she experienced that public shaming, people who didn't know her, commenting on her and what she had done. And because of that, she hid for over a decade. I read a quote from uh, an author, a speaker, called Brene Brown, and she said this, If you put shame in a petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially. It needs secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put that same amount of shame in a petri dish and douse it with empathy and love, it cannot survive. It cannot survive because love kills shame. I love that. Love kills shame. So when we sit with people in these difficult conversations, if we pour out love into that conversation, there is no place for shame. And that love that we pour out is the love of God, the fruit of the Spirit in our life, nourishing us, but we give it out to nourish other people as well. That they ex- receive the love of God as we have those chance. Because we never want people to feel shame. That is not from God. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. God convicts us of our sin. He wants us to recognize it, say sorry for it, turn from it, run away from it. And he wants us to receive his forgiveness. But then it is done Then it is done, it is over. So when we carry shame and guilt, that is not from the Lord. That's the enemy who wants to whisper in our ears and say, you're not really forgiven. You know that, don't you? And That was a pretty bad thing that you did. That is not from the Lord. We have a God who forgives. People of integrity operate with gentleness and love in order to kill shame and enable people to know God's love in a deeper way. Okay, so people of integrity are truth-tellers, they are shame-killers. Thirdly, they are burden-bearers. Verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. We're meant to be like weight-lifters in the kingdom. As my nana would say, a burden shed is a burden halft. Anyone know that one? Yes? A burden shed is a burden halved. A bit like the time when my brother was 14, very skinny, weedy boy, and decided to buy um, a dumbbell set and then realized he couldn't carry them all home. And then we had to go and help him because a burden shed is a burden halved. You know, if we read that verse, um, you know, that we carry each other's burdens, if we read that verse on its own, at face value, we can kind of assume that it is talking about, you know, just walking through life with one another, through the difficulties and the ups and downs, or supporting each other in... um, the difficult stuff like loss and tragedy and sickness the things that make us a victim and you know what that's right and that's a very biblical principle that we should walk through life with people like that but let's look at the context of this verse in particular you know verse one paul was talking about those who were caught in sin should be restored and then he goes on to say bear each other's burdens So what I think Paul is actually talking about in this particular verse, bearing each other's burdens is about bearing the burden of sin for your brother or sister, bearing the burden of their sin, the things that make us, rather than being a victim, the things that actually we're guilty of, the things that make us culprits, perpetrators, bearing each other's burdens of sin. John Piper, who's an American uh, preacher, he says, define a burden then as anything that threatens to crush the joy of our faith whether a tragedy that threatens to make us doubt God's goodness or a sin that threatens to drag us into guilt and judgment. A burden is anything that threatens to crush the joy of our faith. And we're meant to carry each other's burdens. It's easier, probably, I think, in our heads, isn't it, to think, oh, I could carry the burden of sickness or tragedy with somebody. I could carry that kind of burden. But we kind of think that it's more difficult somehow to carry the burden of someone else's sin because it's uncomfortable and it's, it's difficult. But you know, a sinful attitude and um, sinful behaviors can be so much more damaging to people. We have to confront it. Sin is dangerous. Sin is dangerous. You know, I heard a story, a true story, about a man who loved snakes and reptiles and his whole house was full of them. And in particular, he was very proud of his snakes. And he was one of those people who, you know, when he had his friends over, out came the snakes and he'd put it around his neck and show off, oh, isn't she beautiful? And most friends are thinking, ooh, no. But this man was very, very proud of his snakes until one day, true story, his snake strangled him to death. His snake, his own pet, killed him killed by his pet, killed in his home. And some of us, I believe, have got a pet snake of our own, and it's called sin, our little habit. It's just the way I am. I won't be able to ever change. Oh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter because it doesn't hurt anybody else you know, those thought patterns, those behaviors, and we feed our snake, we nurture it, maybe secretly we're proud of it, or perhaps we are blissfully unaware that there is a snake living in our house, but we have to be careful that the snake doesn't strangle us. The Bible says sin easily entangles, and we have to be people who have other people in our lives who are willing to unwrap that snake from around our neck before it kills us. People who will be weightlifters and people who will be burden bearers. Paul says carrying burdens is fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, if you've been looking through Galatians with us, you might think that this is a really weird thing for Paul to say. What? He's talking about the law. He spent all of Galatians telling us how we don't live under the law anymore. You know, Christ has set us free from the law. So why is he now saying that, you know, carrying each other's burdens fulfills the law? It doesn't seem to make any sense. But here's what he means. The law of Christ is the law of love. The greatest commandment is love God, love people. It's just about love. The law of Christ is about loving each other. That fruit of our spirit in our lives to nourish other people. We give it away. We love other people because he loves us. When we carry each other's burdens, it's loving other people. It's not a law that's like a binding law, but it's just an overflow. You know, when we truly understand who God is and what he's done for us, we're so grateful, God, for the way you love me, for what you've done for me. We can't help but overflow that into, into our own lives and the way we relate to people. The way we treat other people, the way we love other people, is in fact a measuring stick of how we understand God's love for us. So if we don't really love other people that much, maybe we need to re-examine what we really believe about God and how He loves us. But when we bear each other's burdens, we do it to spur one another towards love and good deeds. That's a verse from Hebrews 10, 24, that we would spur one another towards love and good deeds, you know. And if we go back to the, my Greeky geek, no Greeky geek, that's not what I meant to say. Geeky Greek thing. Uh, the word spur, you know, spur one another on. Spur in the Greek translate to be a paroxysm. That means an outburst of emotion. It's the kind of thing a coach would do at halftime in a, you know, in a football match with his team. Come on, team. We can do this. Let's go. Come on. I believe in you. Let's get a win. It's that kind of outburst of emotion. So when scripture says, you know, we spur one another on, that's what it is. Come on, I believe in you. You can do this. You can fight this sin. God is big enough to take this from you. Come on. Just want to encourage you. That's the kind of spurring on we do for each other. So it's not a hit and run, okay? We don't sit down with people, drop this kind of tough love bomb, and then leave but we bear each other's burdens. And bear is like a continuous word, you know, continue to bear each other's burdens. We don't do a hit and run, but we commit to praying and walking through that thing, that issue with the person. You might be familiar with the phrase, it's kind of like a business management thing, when people say, I don't want problems, I want solutions. You know, don't come to me with the problem, come to me prepared to help with the solution. And, you know, it's exactly the same here. You know, don't point out someone's sin if you are not prepared to get stuck in and help them work through it. Don't do that, because that lacks integrity. That's just judgment. That is just judgment. It looks like you don't really care about that person's whole being, so get stuck in, roll your sleeves up, and be a burden bearer. Okay, number four. People of integrity are humble-hearted. Here's what Paul says about pride in verse three. He says, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test his own actions. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. And I'm sure we all probably know people who, uh, who we would consider to be self-deceivers, people who think there's something when they're not. And I think you see this at its absolute best in the X Factor auditions. Do you not? People who think they are something, but boy, are they not. <laughs> They're really not. Who told you you could sing? Oh, no one. I just like singing in the shower, and I think I sound really good, so <laughs> I thought I'd come on telly and show you all. How embarrassing. Paul would say they are self-deceivers, people who have a confidence where they really should. Pride is actually at the heart of our sinful nature pride is at the heart of our sinful condition and we see it way back even in the garden of eden eve the snake said to eve you know god said how you shouldn't eat from that tree well if you do you'll become like god and eve thought oh that sounds good and so she ate from the tree that was pride she wanted to be like god started way back then. It's hard to see pride in ourselves sometimes, but it seems like it's really easy to see it in other people. But Paul says, don't deceive yourself. You need to watch your own heart. Watch your heart for pride. So how does that link to kind of what we're talking about, confrontation, tough love? Because when we approach a difficult conversation, I think it can go a couple of different ways. We can be arrogant. We can have the bull in the china shop approach. Sitting down with someone and saying, well, look here, here's your problem. You need to deal with that. Now, I would never struggle with that kind of thing myself, but you need to know that's really wrong. Sort yourself out. I'm better than you. That's what it communicates, and we have to be so careful that that's not what we communicate when we have those kind of conversations that we don't communicate an arrogance of, I would never struggle with that. If we look at people and we look at their sin and we think, that's so awful, I would never do that. We have to really watch ourselves with that because we are all already sinners and we are all vulnerable to sin. We need to be really careful that we're not pride, proud. And I think that was part of the problem with the Galatian church when Paul was writing to them. You know, they were people who loved the law. They loved rules. And they were after anyone who didn't keep them. That's exactly what they were doing. They're going around. You know, you're not keeping the law like I do. I'm right. You're wrong. They were like these moral watchdogs And Paul says in Galatians, you know, they were biting and devouring each other. That's how kind of heated it was. You're not doing it right, and I am. It says they were prone to fits of rage and conceit, and and their arrogance was entirely unhealthy. So Paul says, you know what? That is self-deceiving. You are not better than them. So we have to be careful that we don't approach a conversation with arrogance. But hey, there's the other end of things as well. Many of us will be sitting here thinking, well, I would never be that arrogant because I probably wouldn't have that conversation in the first place. We avoid those conversations. We hate them. You know, it's like, "Oh, well, who who am I to point out that person's sin? I am such a sinner. I am so aware of my own sin. How dare I point it out to someone else? You know, Jesus said, I shouldn't point out the speck in someone else's eye until I've de- dealt with the plank in my own eye. And my goodness, I know I've got a plank. In fact, I've got a whole tree in mine, so how dare I speak to anybody else about their sin? And you know what? You do have sin. You do, and you do need to sort that out. But the problem with with avoiding the conversations is that actually a lot of it is is rooted in fear, isn't it? You know, I daren't point it out because what would they think of me? What would they think of me? They will think I'm a hypocrite. Or how will that affect my friendship with that person now? How will it reflect on me? You know, And all those things, we turn them back to ourselves. It's all about me. I'm worried actually about me in this situation. I'm not really worried about them. I'm worried about me. And so when we make it all about me, it actually comes back to being pride all over again. Our fear or low self-esteem is rooted in pride because we care what people think about us. Um, It was very interesting. We went to the City Church Leadership Conference in January. I don't know if anyone else was there, anyone? We had a really good few days. But there was this this wonderful moment in ministry one day where the guy that was leading the ministry time said, you know, I feel like there might be some people here who really struggle with people-pleasing, and we'd love to pray for you. You know, if you struggle with people-pleasing, you know, and just worry about what people think of you all the time, then why don't you stand up now and we'd like to pray for you. And in a room of 150 people, everyone, bar two people, stood up. And I just thought, isn't that interesting? You look around the room, everybody's worried about what everybody else thinks. That's really sad as well, isn't it? But you know, our fear to confront people, people people-pleasing, all of that stuff, as difficult as it is for me to say this, is just as much rooted in pride as arrogance is because we care about what people think of us. And in Isaiah 51, verse 12, the prophet says this, Who do you think you are to be afraid of a man when I am your God and I have infinite power? We think that we're something. We think that we're important. We think it matters what people think of us, and it doesn't. It doesn't. It matters what God thinks. And he asks us, to have these conversations with people. And then it's down to him to do the work in people's hearts. It's over to him. We don't need more self-esteem to com- from, confront people. We need more Jesus. We need more Jesus. We need more of the fruit of the Spirit. We need more love. We need more gentleness. And it's those things that help us try and find that middle ground, you know, between arrogance and avoidance. More Jesus. And I know that uh, some of you are sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe she's talking about this because now we're all going to be having these difficult conversations with each other and there's going to be tears everywhere and it's all going to be very uncomfortable for a while. That's not necessarily my aim. If those conversations need to happen, then they need to happen. But it's not my aim for us all to start uh, pointing out lots of sin and judgment in each other's lives. Can I just say this? If you do need to have one of those conversations, be wise about it. Be wise. Pray, ask God, you know, how should I approach this? When should I approach this? When is the right time, Lord? But really importantly, make sure you do it within a relationship. You know, don't be like, oh, there's that guy at the back of church, actually. I've just noticed this about you. You've got a bit of sin in you. I've just spotted that. I hope you don't mind me saying. You know, if you don't know that person, that is so damaging. That's just judgmental, isn't it? If there's no relationship there, who are you to point that out in their lives? But those conversations need to happen within the the trust and the safety found in a friendship, in a relationship. Pray, pray, and pray some more before you do it. But check your heart. You know, when we realize that we're all as messed up as each other, when we're all as sinful as each other, then there should be just a natural humility that comes to that conversation. You know, it's the blind leading the blind. Look, I am just as messed up as you are, but I really want the best for you. I want you to be really going on with the Lord. And so I need to talk to you about this. People of integrity are humble-hearted. Okay, and the last one. Phew! You might be thinking, people of integrity—they are comparison-free. Often, uh, the way that we talk about people, the way that we even think about people, is comparison. We compare ourselves. You know, am I better than that person? Am I worse than that person? And as we've already just pointed out, neither things are helpful. You know, to place ourselves above somebody and be arrogant—that's not good. And actually, to have a really low self-esteem—you know—is actually pride as well, to a degree. You know, it's not great to think poorly of ourselves. But Paul says this in verses four and five, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each should carry their own load. And once again, there goes Paul, seeming to contradict himself. What are you on about, Paul? You just said we shouldn't be proud, like pride is a really bad thing, and now you're telling us to take pride in ourselves. I don't get it. You know, you said pride was self-deceiving, so what is that about? And also, you know, Paul, you told us that we should bear each other's burdens, and now you're saying I should carry my own load. I mean, come on, how to confuse someone? But let me explain what I found when I read my little Greek commentaries. It comes in very handy, Greek commentaries. In verse 2, when Paul was talking about bearing each other's burdens, the word for burden actually meant heavy weight. Bear each other's heavy weight. Bear each other's heavy weight that they cannot carry on their own, like my brother with his dumbbell set. You need to bear each other's heavy weight because it's too hard for them to do it on their own. However, in verse 5, when he says, carry your own load, the Greek word for load is more like A backpack. You know, you can manage that. It belongs to you. You carry it on your own shoulders. It's manageable. Carry your own load. And so, when we're told to carry our own load, what is your load? What has God given you? You know, different giftings, opportunities, weaknesses. It's our responsibility before God to be obedient with what he's given us, with what he's put in our backpack, Rather than constantly comparing my backpack to yours or saying, Oh, do you want to swap for a while? Do you want to carry mine? I'll carry yours. Carry your own load. And what that really means is, you know, we don't compare, but we should be measuring ourselves against ourselves. I am responsible before God for my own load and you know many of us we struggle with comparison it's really not surprising is it we live in this world where we're around people in the flesh and then we're around people kind of online on the internet where people tell us all day long what they're doing with their days where they tell us how great and perfect their marriage is or how well behaved their children are or how delicious their food is you know and we all know that's just the highlights real but we can't help but kind of take that on board and you know in our weaker moments just think oh well, my life's terrible compared to them I'm eating beans on toast and look at what they've got for tea it's no wonder that we struggle with comparison when that's the kind of world that we live in and to be totally honest with you there are times quite frequently where I struggle to carry my own load where I resent what God has put in my backpack. I'm just going to be totally honest with you there. You know, I struggle with that as much as anybody else. You know, when I look at my load and I think, God, why have you given me that? Why are you asking me to do that? You know, I'm a pastor, but I'm a woman. You know, you don't see a lot of that. You know, or um, you know, I'm I'm not married, and all our other site pastors are married. Why do I have to do it on my own? And even when I do get married, like that won't be his job necessarily, because he does something else. You know, so I'll still be on my own. You know, I lead worship, but I'm a woman and everyone else seems to be a guy that leads worship in this church and I lead worship on the keys and no one else does that, you know, and I get into this cycle of thinking that's like, oh, everybody's better than me or it's so hard for me because of this, this or this, you know, I make all these excuses and I'm sure you do very similar things too, you know, about why life is so much simpler for other people, you know, oh, it's easy for them because, you know, they're married or it's easy for them because they've got so much more money than me or it's easy for them because they're parents or it's easy for them because they're older than me or whatever it is you know like I get I get that pl- to that place and it's wrong and I hate that I hate that I let my thinking go down that line because it's sin. it is sin, but I love this phrase you might have heard this if the grass looks greener on the other side, you need to water your own lawn. It's true if the grass looks greener on the other side, you need to water your own lawn. What has God put in your load? Stop looking at everybody else's backpack. Check out what is in yours. What do you need to do with that? What are you responsible for? You know, the truth is, a lot of what God has put in my backpack is really good. And he is my strength. He is my enabler. And he is yours too. You know, it's my job to just be obedient with it, to stop comparing with other people's loads. And, you know, just off the back of of that, I want to just encourage anyone who who tonight you feel a bit like me in terms of um, I feel like I can't do it because no one else is doing it, I feel like I'm the only one I want to encourage you, you may be the only one but please go for it, don't let that stop you, please don't let that stop you, we're cheering you on so people of integrity are comparison free, you know they understand what God has asked them to do, they understand who God has asked them to be and they're obedient with it people of integrity cut out comparison from their lives. And that is not easy. But I love this verse, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so we can't always cut out comparison in our own might, by our own power, but we have the Holy Spirit who helps us. We have a spirit who helps us. And so really, that, that is, that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. But all of this is important because we are the church. We are God's bride, the body of Christ, and it is so important that we protect that. That we do our best to keep our relationships right. That we do our best to keep each other on track with God. That we don't give the enemy any kind of foothold, any way in to destroy what the church should be. We're meant to be a reflection of God. So sometimes that means that difficult conversations have to happen. That's a reality. But it doesn't have to destroy us in any way. You know, God God goes with us. And here's some instructions tonight for us, how we can do that with integrity. Why don't we stand?